Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco. This week, a conversation with Brian Greene, one of the world's leading theoretical physicists. Greene is widely recognized for his groundbreaking discoveries in the field of superstring theory. His ability to clearly communicate cutting-edge science, even bringing humor to abstruse mathematical concepts, has made Greene a sort of rock star scientist. On February 25, 2020, Green came to the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco to talk to Gina Pell about his newest book, Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Join us now for a conversation with Brian Green. Well, when I was writing your introduction, I was absolutely astounded by how much you do. You're a professor, you're an author, you're a playwright. Um, not even mentioning you're your, a pioneer in spatial topology change and mirror symmetry. I just want to know, do you ever sleep? <laughs> or, or did you find Now I don't, I tell you that much. Um, now, where do you find the time to do all of this? I, I couldn't even wash my hair today. Yeah, well, um, you know, th- there's a theme that runs through all of these, which is just trying to gain some insight into how the world works. So even though they may sound like disparate undertakings, they're all really tied together with the same driving force. It's just trying to figure things out. And figuring things out is definitely what you you do in your new book, Until the End of Time. You took on such a vast scope in your book. Why? Because the other books, you you focused on string theory and then the fabric of the cosmos. Well, in, in, in some ways, I really feel like I've been writing this book for many decades because I've long felt that there's this false divide between scientific pursuits and humanistic pursuits and theological pursuits, and there's absolutely a deep connection between all of it. And in this book, I tried to give a sense of the commonalities and the threads that really do tie them together. When you speak of time, it, it, your book's called Until the End of Time, how, how, what time are you talking about? Because, I mean, we experience time every day. We strap it to our, our wrist. We wish for more time. What's the time that a physicist talks about? Well, there are qualities of time that physics has revealed that are completely counterintuitive, right? Einstein was the first to really reveal that time elapses at different rates if we are in relative motion, that time elapses at different rates if we experience different gravitational fields. But in this book, those subtle qualities of time are not at the fore of the story. The time that I'm talking about here really is the kind of time that we all intuitively have. However, the book pushes into the far future and therefore discusses timescales that are so enormous that none of us have an intuition for those particular kinds of durations. 
But there isn't any subtlety in what I mean when I talk about, say, 10 to the 10 or 10 to the 50 or 10 to the 100 years into the future. Those years are the same kind of years that you and I experience. It's just that there are more of them than we're familiar with. And your book starts at the Big Bang. Well, it doesn't start at the Big Bang, but you cover the Big Bang, every single thing in it to the end of time. What, I know you've been talking about what happens before the Big Bang. What, what did happen before the Big Bang? I mean, we're trying to figure that out right now. Well, it's, it's a good and deep question, and it's a curious one because, first, we don't have an answer to that question, but we do have two ideas that have been pursued. One of those ideas is that maybe there was an era before the Big Bang. Maybe the Big Bang is an interesting event that starts the swelling of the fabric of space that we inhabit, but maybe it was an event that didn't start at all, but rather there was a pre-existing universe, and this was an interesting event, certainly very important for us, but as far as the grand scope of reality is concerned, it may have just been one of many Big Bangs, perhaps, giving rise to many expanding realms and therefore many universes. So that's one possibility for what might have been before. The other possibility is that even though the question seems to make sense and we can parse it using our understanding of the English language, it may not actually be a real question at all because it could be the time itself began at the Big Bang. A good analogy is, you know, if you are on planet Earth and you're walking north and you ask for directions to go further north, something can point you in the northward direction. You pass somebody else and say, how do I go further north? And they point you in the right direction. But when you get to the North Pole itself and you ask somebody there, how do I go further north? They say, you can't go further north than the North Pole. That's where north begins. So similarly, we can mm -hmm. think about a billion years ago or five billion years ago or 13.8 billion years ago. And when you get back to 13.82 billion years ago, it may be that the notion of going further back in time makes as little sense as going further north than the North Pole. Interesting. So I'd love to talk about how, talk about space-time and how time is stitched into the three dimensions that we know. So is what you're saying um, that time started, the, time as we know it started at the Big Bang? Conceivably. And that, well, until the end of time, and time is going to end. Yeah, and the end, as, as you're familiar from already reading the book, not to give any spoilers, there isn't an end in the same sense that the Big Bang might have been the beginning. It's more that in the very far future, everything that we are familiar with may go away, and there may not be a lot of activity that takes place in that future realm. So many of us envision that as a place where time ends, not because there's a, a wall that says no time beyond this time in the far future, but rather because not much happens. Um, how is evolution central to your discussion? Well, there really are two themes that I use to organize. I mean, it's a big journey, right? A lot happens between the Big Bang and the end of time, and you want some kind of organizational principles, you know, so that you're not at sea when you're trying to make sense of it all. And, and the two principles I use, one you use in your opening joke, which is entropy, and the other is the one that you just mentioned, which is evolution. And you can, in some sense, see these two principles as the dominating 
theme in the unfolding of the cosmos because in some sense, and we can discuss it in more detail, entropy we typically think of, and it's not a bad way of thinking about it, although there are important subtleties, entropy is the degradation of structure. It's the withering away of structure. It's the move from order toward disorder. Evolution works in some sense in the other direction. It takes an environment that itself may be disordered and chaotic and finds a way of fashioning ordered complex structures within that environment. So in some sense, entropy destroys structure and evolution builds up structure. That's not completely accurate, but it's not a bad way of thinking about the two organizing principles that guide us from the beginning to the end. And is that what you call the entropic two-step? Well, the entropic two-step is a quality of entropy that allows it to engage with evolution in a much richer way than you perhaps would have naively thought. So to discuss that, it's worth saying a couple words about entropy, a little bit more detail. So again, the intuition of entropy going from order to disorder, from structure to dissolution of structure... That's a fine way of thinking about it in everyday language intuitively. In physics, we talk about it a little bit more precisely, where we talk about the number of rearrangements of the ingredients that make up a physical system that keep its overall appearance more or less intact. And if you have a system that's highly disordered, you know, think about your desktop when everything is strewn this way or that. If you rearrange the ingredients, almost any rearrangement, it's still going to look disordered. So that's a high entropy disordered state because there's so many rearrangements of the ingredients that will make no effect on the appearance whatsoever. However, if your desktop is highly arranged, the paper clips in the right place, the pencils in the holder, the pages are in their correct order in a nice neat stack then almost any rearrangement of those ingredients will disrupt the highly ordered configuration of your desktop. That, therefore, is a situation that's highly ordered, and we call it low entropy by virtue of the few rearrangements that are possible. And the entropic two-step, as I describe in the book, is a means by which the universe has found a way to move from order toward disorder but still build up ordered structures in the process. Because the second law of thermodynamics that you made reference to tells us that it's the tendency of the universe to go from order to disorder. Entropy tends to go from low values to high values. Your desktop tends to go from order to disorder. It's rare that you leave in the morning and your desktop is all disordered and you come back and just randomly it's ordered itself and it's all you know, beautiful and pristine. That could happen, but it rarely, if ever, does. It's the reverse thing that happens. And so you would think that from the Big Bang toward the end of time, if entropy is always on the rise, how would you get any ordered structures to exist at all? And that's this entropic two-step, because order can form in this region of space, so long as in the process, enough disorder is emitted to the external environment so that on balance there's more disorder than order even though you can have an ordered structure form. And the prototypical example are stars. How do stars form? Particles are flung outward by the Big Bang. You would think, naively based on the increase of entropy, that the particles will just continue to fly outward. 
Gravity steps into the story. Gravity can pull the particles together, creating a highly ordered star. And in the process, and you can show this mathematically, the star itself emits heat and light to the environment, and that heat and light compensates for the order that the star has so that the overall disorder of the universe goes up even though the star, its order increases. Its disorder goes down. And it's that dance between order here and disorder there that allows structure to form. Without that, the universe would be a completely bland, boring place. The Big Bang would have happened, particles would have spread out, and that would be it. There'd be nothing else to talk about. Thank you for coming, everybody. Um, (laughs) I want to talk about, so the way you described it, we have the Big Bang, you have chaos, it spreads out, it creates our universe, and then you you have highly ordered, you have have planetary order, then then stars form, planets form. Einstein thought that we lived in a static universe at first, right? So what was his thinking at the time, and how... How did he change his mind? You know, you look out on a dark, starry night, and it seems as though the universe is static on the largest of scales, right? The stars really don't seem to be moving. It seems to be that there is local motion, you know, planets in orbit around the sun. But on the largest of scales, it seems like the universe is not changing at all. And that was a philosophical prejudice that held sway in, say, the late 1800s, the early 1900s. And Einstein himself, maverick thinker that he was, he bought into this picture of the universe on the largest of scales. And it's remarkable because his general theory of relativity, which he developed in 1915, that was the final version that he gave to the world, within a few years... Others who studied his equations and applied his equations to the entirety of the universe found that the universe could not be static, eternal, and unchanging. Einstein's own math was saying that the universe was either stretching or contracting. It could not hold still. Now, when those researchers confronted Einstein with this implication of his own mathematics for the entirety of the universe, Einstein's response was, your math is correct, but your physics is abominable. What he meant by that is you have to have a good, strong physical intuition to determine what mathematical ideas are relevant to reality and which mathematical ideas should just be in mathematics textbooks. And that's all that they are. And that was his view. And what changed it was in 1929, Edwin Hubble, using the telescope at the Mount Wilson Observatory, found that the distant galaxies are all rushing away. And and Hubble himself, it's kind of remarkable, he studied law at Oxford. He was a lawyer, right? And he changed careers to become an astronomer, which to me means there's hope for absolutely everyone. (laughs) And And it's his observations that turn Einstein around. When Einstein sees the data that the galaxies are moving away, he realizes that the universe is not static and kind of hits himself in the head and wishes that he would have believed his own equations because his math would have predicted the expansion of the universe before it was even observed. And what a triumph that would have been. My God. Could you give us a a, a little brief refresher on relativity? Well, yeah, I mean... (laughs) Right? No, I, 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 I totally get it. We all... Live busy lives. 
Sometimes we get a little rusty on, on relativity. And, uh, well, I got special and, and now. And having a refresher is a good thing, yeah. no doubt. So, so the basic idea of relativity comes in two flavors. In 1905, the special theory, Einstein finds that there is this flexibility in space and time that we would never have thought of based on everyday experience. Everyday experience suggests to us that time for you and time for me are the same, that space for you, space for me is the same, regardless of what we're doing or how we're moving. And in the special theory of relativity showed that that is just plain wrong. Time for you is different from me if we're moving. And that is something that we don't experience in everyday life simply because we don't move fast enough. But if we routinely move near the speed of light, if the speed of light was a smaller number, right, it's a big number, 671 million miles an hour, right, fast enough for a beam of light to go around the earth seven times in a single second, we don't go anywhere near those speeds. But if we did, we would intuitively understand that time differs when we are in relative motion because we'd experience it all the time. But the genius of Einstein was to leap beyond the obfuscation of everyday experience and reveal the true nature of space and time. And that was 1905. 1915, he goes further. He includes the force of gravity in his theories of relativity and shows that gravity itself comes from warps and curves in the fabric of space and time. Right? Why does the Earth go around the sun? Because the sun warps the environment and the Earth is kind of nudged around, sort of like a marble rolling along a warped piece of rubber. If you put a rock in the middle, the marble will go in orbit around the rock because it's being nudged by the curved shape of the rubber sheet. Similarly, the Earth goes around the sun because it's being nudged around by the curved shape of space. And he did this all really theoretically, mathematically, writes down an equation, November 25th, 1915, he stands in front of a packed hall at the Prussian Academy in Berlin and writes down the final equation of the general theory of relativity. It was still math at that point. Four years later, observations of distant stars during a solar eclipse confirm Einstein's prediction that the starlight should go on a curved trajectory on its way toward Earth. And he receives a telegram in September of 1919 alerting him that his prediction has been confirmed. And he's with a student, and the, the student asks Einstein, well, says, congratulations, but what would you have said, Professor Einstein, if the observations had not confirmed your prediction? And he says, I would have been sorry for the dear Lord, for the theory is correct. Like I had confidence. Um, so do people follow the same planetary laws? Like, you know how people say that person has a lot of gravity or he's within my orbit. Do, do people follow the same planetary yeah, laws? Yeah, you know, metaphorically, you, you, you can speak like that. Um, but that's all that version of the story is. However, the question that you ask is an important one. And it's actually one that really drives a lot of the discussion in my book because it is the case that you and me and everybody else and planets and stars are all composed of the same kind of ingredients and we are all governed by the same physical laws expressed in mathematical equations. There is a deep continuity between stars and planets and people and, and glasses of water and everything else. So from the standpoint 
of the reductionist view of what you are and what I am and what the sun is, we are all the same at the level of the most fundamental ingredients and the fundamental laws that govern how we behave. And there are deep implications of that for what it means to be a human being. Okay, so if we're a bag of particles, do we, do we have free will? Um, yeah, that's a, that is a good question. And the answer to it is we don't. That's it. <laughs> now. So, yeah. Now, y- you know, uh, 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 you have to... But it's s- good to think that you do, isn't it? Oh, it's a powerful <laughs> force. Yeah. The sensation of free will is something that we all have, and presumably it has powerful survival value. And the reason why we have this sense that we are the ultimate authors of our actions, that we are the place from which everything that we do emerges, that we are not in any way, shape, or form being puppeted, being our strings being pulled by the mathematical laws of physics. We all have a strong intuition that that is how the world works. And presumably we have that because those of our forebears that had that perspective are the ones that triumphed in the ancestral world. But that doesn't make it true because evolution prepared us to survive, not to understand how the world really works. And those are two radically different propositions. And through our concerted effort to figure out the laws of physics and the particles of nature and how you synthesize those ingredients to make complex objects from planets to people, we come to conclusions that cast a distinct light on the intuitive sense that we have of the world. So when you come to free will, if your definition of free will, and many people have different definitions of free will, so let me just say the one that I'm referring to. I'm referring to the intuition that I was mentioning before, that I call my own shots, that I am the ultimate place where my actions originate. And that is incoherent when you try to square it with our fundamental understanding of the world. Why? I am a collection of particles that are fully governed by the ironclad laws of physics. As I talk right now, as I think right now, it is simply a manifestation of my particles moving this way or that inside my brain and inside my body. And all of that particle motion is completely and fully governed by mathematical law. There is simply no place for me, whatever that me means, to intercede in that mathematical unfolding. I assure you there's no place in the laws of physics where it says... This is how the particles will behave according to these equations until this moment in time when the math needs to stop and and Brian needs to intercede and do something so that the world knows how to carry on. (laughs) Nothing like that exists. There's no opportunity for us to get in on the action. And from that perspective, there is no free will. (laughs) Okay, then. So what about consciousness? Well, consciousness is... A useful quality, a distinguishing quality. This is hilarious. Okay, tell me more. It's a vital quality Uh of what we human beings mean when we talk about our inner essence, right? And you can say to yourself, where does it originate? Where does it come from? Nobody knows the answer to that question. In fact, the deep puzzle, it's called the hard problem of consciousness... This is labeled by David Chalmers, a philosopher at NYU, who labeled it back in the 1990s. Look, the question is, if we are collections of particles, which we are, 
And if those individual particles like electrons and quarks and every other kind of more exotic particle, neutrinos and so forth, if they are all mindless particles, they themselves don't have consciousness, then how could it possibly be that when you put a lot of them together and get them to move in a complex choreography, that that motion can somehow yield the inner sensation of thought, emotion, sensation, reflection, the inner voice that takes place inside of our heads. Where could that possibly come from if the ingredients themselves have no quality of that whatsoever? So, what's the answer to that? Well, some have suggested, Chalmers being among them, maybe particles are conscious. Maybe electrons have a kind of proto-conscious quality, and quarks do as well, and when you put a lot of those particles together, grouping together their proto-conscious quality, you yield consciousness as we experience it. That's the extent to which this difficult problem has pushed some people. It is a bizarre-sounding idea. It conceivably could be true, but I am not at all convinced that that is the right direction to go. And I like to reflect back on an analogous question to the one that you asked, which was raised back in the 1800s, which is, how could it be that lifeless particles, like electrons and quarks, even though they didn't know the names back then, but they were talking about the particles of matter, the ingredients, how could lifeless ingredients somehow come together to yield a being that is alive? What was the answer that some suggested back then? They can't. Particles alone can't do it. You need to inject a life force, vitalism. There's something else that must be injected into the system before a collection of particles can rise up and be alive. Now, as we have studied life over the course of 100, 150 years since those discussions were put forward, nobody says that any longer. No biologist, well, maybe I shouldn't say no, very few, if at all, would hold to that idea any longer. Rather, we're now pretty convinced that particles and forces, when put together in the right way, can yield living systems. It's no longer a mystery. My suspicion is that whatever it is, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years from now, we will look back at this era and kind of smile at how quaint it is that in this day and age, some felt the need to inject consciousness with such a grand quality of mystery that we thought we needed something else beyond the particles and the forces. I don't think we do. It is simply the case that when you have a collection of particles moving in the manner that they do inside of our brains, that kind of processing of particle motion, that information processing, yields the inner sensation that we call conscious self-awareness. And that's what it is. So you think in the future we're going to look back at consciousness and say, oh, that was so adorable. In a sense. In a <laughs> sense. It, it was adorable that we thought it was more than what it is. That it was as important but, as But I should say at the is. same time, because sometimes when I say that, I think it gives the wrong impression. Because I'm not in any way diminishing conscious experience. In fact, I feel that this perspective elevates it. Because how remarkable is it that the very same kinds of particles making up this table and making up this glass, governed by the very same forces that govern the table and govern the glass, that's all you need to yield conscious awareness so long as the particles are correctly configured. 
To me, it is so spectacular that particles can do that. And that, to me, elevates the view of consciousness rather than saying there's something else that comes in from the outside that animates the inanimate. And the same is true of free will, right? You know, while I, in my description, strongly come to the perspective that we don't have the usual kind of free will that most of us hold intuitively, there are other versions that I think are just as powerful and just as useful that I think we do have. For instance, how do we differ from the table, right? We differ because evolution has configured us in an exquisite arrangement that is so much more complex and rich than the configuration of particles in the table. What's the implication? The table can't respond in interesting ways to stimuli from the environment, right? If light shines on the table, if I hit the table, it doesn't do very much. And that's because it doesn't have the complex arrangement of particles that we have. We have this wide repertoire of behaviors that we are able to execute. We don't freely choose those behaviors, but the range of things that we can do is so enormous that it gives the richness to experience that we are all familiar with. So when I think about, for instance, just to make it personal, what I do, I just articulated a sentence. How do I view that? Did I freely choose that sentence? I don't think that I did. But nevertheless, I sit back and I say, hey, particles, nice job. <laughs> that was a good sentence, and I'm really pleased that you said it. And, 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 and it makes me feel good. It makes me, f I take ownership for what my particles can do because what my particles do is dictated by the iconic quality of their arrangement. And that's what I mean by me. The particular arrangement of my particles differs from yours, and that's why we're two different human beings. I'm like so the table. My responses, <laughs> so my responses reflect the pattern of particles that I have, and therefore they are an indication and a reflection of who I am. Okay, this is going to seem like a really weird non sequitur to the audience, but um, you have a chapter in your book called Sex and Cheesecake, and it kind of relates to what we're talking about right now. Yeah, so that's um, in, in a chapter that discusses creative expression. And again, just to give you a sense, it's a chapter that follows discussions of storytelling and myth-making and religious practice, and it's a focus on one of the iconic things that we have done going back, you know, into the earliest era of our forebears, right? I mean, there are musical instruments that have been dug up from archaeological sites that go back, you know, tens of thousands of years. So creative expression and, and cave paintings, creative expression are things that we have done for a very long time. And the question is, why do we do it, right? Why would we spend time, you know, playing music or painting cave walls when we could be out sharpening spears and gathering more fruit, right? It seems that we're doing something that's not evolutionarily useful. And so the question is, why do we do it? And Darwin himself struggled with this question for a long time in the context of uh, the famous example of the peacock's tail. Because the peacock's tail is, again, this resplendent, beautiful structure. Why would nature allow that extravagant structure to exist? Because it makes it difficult for the peacock to hide from predators. It makes it difficult for the peacock to run away if 
there's some animal that's chasing it. So it seems to diminish the adaptive quality of the peacock to have to lug around this spectacular tail. And the answer, famously, that Darwin came to is that there are kind of two kinds of natural selection. There's natural selection, survival of the fittest, that we often describe it in shorthand, which would seem to suggest that evolution would select for those physical qualities that allow us to prevail. But there's another kind of selection, which is we need to mate. And the theory goes that the peacock's tail is very attractive to peahens. So peahens will choose those peacocks who have the most beautiful tail, and therefore those are the peacocks that will reproduce, and therefore the progeny will themselves also have resplendent tails or a desire to mate with those that have resplendent tails. So this is the notion of sexual selection as a potential explanation for aesthetic sensibilities. There are others, however, who think that that's maybe relevant for the peacock, but when it comes to human artistic expression, maybe it's not, right? Darwin definitely thought that it was. He thought that, you know, those of our species in the old days who could sing best or who perhaps tattooed the most beautiful designs on their body, those were the members of our species who reproduced and therefore an artistic sensibility would have spread widely through the population. But people like Steven Pinker, no doubt many of you are familiar with his books, thinks that you can't apply that reasoning in the manner that would explain all of artistic expression that we humans undertake. So, for instance, when it comes to music, his view is that music is just freeloading on our adaptive sensibilities that were developed in the ancestral world. So, for instance, those of our forebears who were sonically attuned they could hear a sound over there and they would be able to analyze what it was and where it was coming from or they would hear one over there, they would have a better understanding of the environment and therefore would have a better chance of surviving. So that makes sense. But then when music comes along, according to Pinker, it's just preying on that sonic sensitivity by leapfrogging over any adaptive utility and sort of pressing our pleasure buttons in a way that makes us feel good but doesn't have any adaptive role at all. And the metaphor that he uses indeed is the one that you mentioned, cheesecake, because he says, look, what is cheesecake, right? We developed a predilection for fats and for sweets in the ancestral world because those of our forebears who would eat the ripened fruit or, or go and eat the nuts were the ones who would survive when times turned lean, right? And therefore, that predilection for eating those foodstuffs spread widely. But cheesecake just preys on that sensitivity, right? It has no adaptive value at all. We simply concoct this mega brew, in Pinker's language, of ingredients that press the pleasure buttons that in the ancient world did have adaptive value, but today don't do anything for us at all. So from his perspective, music and cheesecake are sort of playing the same role. You are an incredible storyteller. Um, speaking of which, your book has nested stories, personal stories about yourself. You've brought a lot more of yourself into this book, which I loved. Um, talk to me about the story about yeah. when you were a latch, were you a latchkey kid? You talked about a story when you were in fourth grade and oh, you were yeah, trying right. to make a pizza. And you, you discovered something very important about science. 
That yeah, time. yeah. So, so uh, ha happy to briefly mention that. But, but the overarching notion of storytelling is one that is threaded throughout the book because a theme of the book is what we do when we self-aware beings can stand up and look around and wonder how we got here and wonder what we should do with our time and wonder about what's going to happen in the far future, we do tell stories to each other. That is the vernacular in which we try to make sense of the world. And you can again ask yourself where from an evolutionary standpoint does that come from? And much as with artistic creative expression, there's controversy about these issues. But I'm quite convinced by the perspective that says that storytelling is our way of rehearsing for the real world in a safe manner. Much as ethologists have looked at many animal species that engage in play, sometimes very rough play, that allows them to practice and train for real world encounters, but in a relatively safe environment, Storytelling is what we do to try to make sense of the world in a manner that prepares us to better survive in that world because we've encountered all sorts of experiences internally without the danger of encountering them externally. So, in a sense, this book is about layered stories that go all the way down to the physicist reductionist account, which we've said a few words about already, and then talking about the chemist account, which takes the fundamental particles and tells the story of how they come together into complex atoms and molecules, and the biologist account, which is how those complex molecules and atoms can come together in cells and multicellular organisms, living systems. And then on top of that, the, the neuroscientist or the psychologist account, which says, okay, where does consciousness come into the story. And on top of that, the story that speaks to the things that we already mentioned, the activities that we undertake from religious practice to creative expression, which is the humanist story of how we try to make sense of the world. And it's only through the union of all of these stories that we get the deepest account of who we are, how we got here, and where we are going. And the reductionist story often gets a bad rap. Because often when we physicists talk about the reductionist story, we stop right there. And that makes it seem like this, this ham-fisted, flat-footed approach to try to understanding the world, which is missing all the beauty and the wonder of conscious self-awareness. We never really mean it that way. It's just where we focus our attention. But I try to make clear in this book that that story undergirds all the other stories, but the other stories have vital insights into the nature of the world that the physicist's reductions account cannot shed light on. The questions that you ask determine the kinds of stories that matter. And for certain stories that matter to us as human beings, it's way up here at the humanist account that you get the deepest understanding. And what questions are you thinking about now after you've written this book? Well, what are some of the questions that you're thinking about today? Well... You know, from a scientific perspective, the, the, the questions that, that excite me the most right now ask, could it be that the very notion of space or the very notion of time may themselves be approximate ideas, emergent ideas that themselves rest upon deeper ingredients or deeper notions that 
when understood, would show how in certain environments space and time emerge, but they may not even have relevance to all of reality. I mean, you know, if you look at a table, we know that the table is made of molecules, atoms, and particles. Could it be that space and time are themselves made of some kind of molecules, atoms, and particles, fundamental entities that only when they come together in the right way build space and time? And remarkably, we're starting to gain insight into those kinds of deep questions. We don't have the answers yet, but we're much further along in a question like that than I thought we'd ever be at this moment. How so? Well, in string theory, there is the possibility from some of the work that's being done that the metaphor that we often use, we often say the fabric of space and time, right? Now... That's a fine metaphor, and it's one that I think helps us understand Einstein's ideas. If that fabric warps and curves, we can sort of picture that. But is it just a metaphor, or is the notion of a fabric something that we can take more seriously? Now, a real fabric, you know, anything that we have access to, is itself stitched by threads. And we're starting to see in quantum mechanics and in gravity and putting them together, quantum gravity that it may be that the threads that stitch the fabric of space may be the threads of quantum entanglement, which is this idea Mm -hmm. that two distant particles can somehow behave as though they are next to each other, behave as though they are one. There's this invisible quantum thread between them, and those threads of quantum entanglement may be what stitches the space-time fabric, which is an incredibly exciting idea. Would that mean that time would not necessarily go in one direction? Not necessarily. I'm saying that that may not be the implication. I I don't... don't, That time only goes forward. Yeah, so I don't fully see... Well, a deep question about time is why does it have an arrow? Why does it have an orientation to it? When it comes to space, look, we can move this way, that way, this way, up, down, left, right, back, forth. We have total freedom to navigate through the spatial environment without constraint. But somehow when it comes to time... We're forced to navigate it in one and only one direction. Why is that? Mm -hmm. And it's still an open question. And perhaps if we better understood the ingredients of space and time, we would gain insight into where the disparity, the asymmetry, if you will, comes from. But I, I don't see an answer of that sort emerging yet, largely because the focus so far has been more on understanding threading the fabric of space. The temporal part is still something that deserves greater attention, and researchers are giving that attention now. I'm still trying to understand entropy. If you look at entropy from chaos to disorder, then to from chaos to from chaos to order to disorder. Yeah. Um, you can you can you can measure time, or you can you can deduce time based on how much entropy there is. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, so you, you, you can't imagine, as you're saying, that an arrow of time is following along the overall entropic progression. Mm-hmm. Now, you started with, with chaos in, in your description, mm-hmm. and that may have been a chaotic early state, but mm-hmm. we believe that the Big Bang was a highly ordered mm-hmm. environment. And we, right the, mo- the, the second just, before the beginning. You know, a split second after the beginning. We, yeah. we, we can't use our mathematics to fully understand time zero itself. That's still up in the air. But a fraction of a second after the beginning, we have mathematical equations that we trust 
to describe what's going on. And in that environment, we envision that the Big Bang was highly, highly ordered. And it's the degradation, the overall degradation of that order that we are living through. So in some sense, stars and planets and people are kind of a way station in the entropic progression from the ordered Big Bang to the highly disordered future. So we're the middle stage we're of entropy. We're the middle stage. That's comforting. And more than that, we are actually a conduit. We are a conduit through which the universe is able to squeeze out the entropy potential of matter. Because what do we do? We take in fuel from the environment. We take in food. We take in oxygen. We burn internally that food in order to be able to maintain our internal order, our homeostatic order. But in the process, we release heat and waste to the environment. It's the entropic Mm two-step again. Mm -hmm. So we are a structure, a gadget, if you will, that can take in ordered structures in the world, plants and other foods. We burn them up and we yield a disordered array of particles that we give out to the external world. So we are a machine that takes in order and yields disorder. That's what we do. You know, speaking of intake, (laughs) that's also comforting. Um, (laughs) It's a well-known fact that you're a vegan, and uh, we were talking at dinner, and I was saying um, Einstein was a vegetarian, Newton was a vegetarian, da Vinci was a vegetarian, and you said that you didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I had no idea that Newton was a vegetarian. But I'm I found that, on that I, well, I found that out because it, it, you were listed on a site of geniuses who are vegetarians and vegans. <laughs> and um, I think it's great that you, you, you talk about being a vegan a lot. You talked about it on Colbert. Is there something to do with veganism in your cosmic worldview? You know, um, at some level, the answer has to be no, right? <laughs> because... I, I've, I've emphasized repeatedly that we're just collections of particles, <laughs> and it's the same kinds of particles. So why in the world would I ever care if the particles were arranged in a piece of meat or a plant? It's the same stuff, after all. It's the same vibrating quantum mechanical ingredients. So there's some irrational quality from the reductionist standpoint. But from the higher level story, I find meat utterly disgusting. Right? I find it utterly barbaric that we go out and we kill these animals and then we eat them. And this is a view that, you know, my parents were not vegetarian. When I was nine years old, my mother made spare ribs. And it was the first time that I realized what meat was. I mean, I grew up in New York City, so meat was just another thing that came in a package from the supermarket, right? So when I saw the bones in that meat, it hit me of what it was that I was eating, and, and, I, and I put it down, and I said, I'm never eating meat again. I went right to the refrigerator and made a salami sandwich. Um, <laughs> and and my, my parents said, well, well, that's meat too, thinking I would just give it up right there, but I put the sandwich down, and that was the last piece of meat I ate. <laughs> okay. You know, we have, we have a few minutes before we go to questions, and I wanted to ask the last question, which is, what can we say about the very far future. Yeah, right. I mean, if you write a book called Until the End of Time, you better say something about uh, what happens from here forward. So So most of our discussion tonight was sort of, you know, from the Big Bang to the emergence of of life and consciousness, which is an important part of the story. 
But we can use our mathematical equations to pivot and look to the far future. And look, there are uncertainties, primary of which we don't know the role that conscious life will play in shaping the far future. But if the laws of physics dominate the cosmological progression from today onward, then we can make statements about what will happen. And in the book, I use a little metaphor of, uh, to try to give us a mental toehold on the timescales that you need to discuss when you're thinking about the far future. And the metaphor is the Empire State Building. And I ask the reader, and might as well do it here too, I'll ask all of you to buy into this metaphor for a moment. So imagine that we have the Empire State Building. And each floor of the Empire State Building represents a duration that's ten times that of the previous floor. So the ground floor, one year. First floor, ten. Second floor, a hundred. Third, a thousand, and so forth. You see, we're going exponentially far into the future as we go up the Empire State Building. Now, in this scheme, everything that we've discussed from the Big Bang until today extends to just above the tenth floor, about ten billion years from the Big Bang. And from here, we're just going to head farther and farther into the future. So I'll take you through some of the highlights By the 11th floor, the sun will likely swell to over 200 times its current size, engulfing the inner planets and possibly planet Earth as well. By the 12th floor, distant galaxies will rush away ever more quickly, faster than the speed of light, leaving us floating in a sea of darkness. By floor 14, most stars will use up their nuclear fuel and fade to black. By floor 20, if the earth wasn't swallowed up by the sun back on floor 11, it will spiral into the dead sun, having lost energy through gravitational radiation. By floor 30, most stars will fall into their galaxy's central black hole. By floor 38, protons, the very heart of matter, will likely disintegrate, spelling the end of complex matter. By floor 50... If there are any cogitating beings left in the universe, it's hard to imagine that there will be without any complex matter, but if any are left, they will think their final thought. The reason being, the process of thought is also dancing the entropic two-step. Thought requires heat to be released to the environment, and you can show mathematically that roughly by the 50th floor, the universe won't be able to accept any more heat. So the very process of thought will create so much heat that if the cogitating being undertakes one more thought, it will fry in its own waste heat. (laughs) By floor 68 to the peak of the Empire State Building, black holes, the remaining structure in the universe, they will evaporate, spewing out a bath of particles that will waft through an ever larger, ever colder cosmos. That's it. And we're simply worried about a presidential election. Um, all right, Brian can take some questions now. Hi, thanks for the uh, great talk. I was wondering if you could give us your um, list of the top five unsolved mysteries in physics beyond our ability to test today. Yeah, so uh, one of which we discussed, the, the true nature of space and time. Where do they come from? Uh, Another deep question is, why do the particles of matter have the properties that they do? Why does the electron weigh what it does, and why do the quarks have the particular charges that they do? These are things we put into the equations. It's not something that we're able to extract from our mathematics. What is the origin of the dark energy that's causing the accelerated expansion of space, and will the strength of that dark energy change over time? 
because the far future that I recounted assumed that that dark energy will not gain in strength. If it does gain in strength, something I and many others consider unlikely, but it's allowed by the mathematics, then the story that I describe would actually end around the 12th floor of the Empire State Building because things will rush away in space, but they'll also rush away on smaller scales too as the repulsive push of dark energy gets ever larger. Even electrons will be ripped away ultimately from the nuclei of atoms, so matter itself will just be ripped apart. And indeed, this scenario is called the Big Rip. So that's a deep unsolved question that observations of distant galaxies may give us some understanding of whether dark energy is constant in time or whether it changes in time. Another question close to my heart is whether string theory is right. (laughs) It's beyond our ability to test today, although there are indirect probes that could have shed insight on certain qualities of string theory, the supersymmetric quality, which predicts that there should be other particles in the world beyond the ones that we've already seen. So far, at the Large Hadron Collider, there's been no evidence that there is uh, any of these particles, but they simply could be too heavy for that machine to find. So exactly as you're asking, it's beyond our ability to be sure one way or another today because of the technological limitations. Final question. I mean, I could keep on going all night on this sort of stuff. You did say five. So for the fifth one, I would say we want to understand the nature of the singularities that happen at the center of black holes and at the moment of the Big Bang. And the weird thing is, I think most of us have an image of a black hole as, you know, it's this dark sphere in space. We've actually seen photographs of them now, so they are really real to us. And I think, therefore, many of us, when we think about the center of a black hole, think it's a position in space. That's actually wrong. The center of a black hole is more akin to a moment in time, because when you cross over the edge of a black hole, the black holes arise, and the roles of space and time interchange. So one explanation for why you get dragged ever further into a black hole is because you are moving along time. So just as you can't help but move to the next second in time, you can't help but move to the center of a black hole. But what truly happens at the center? The math breaks down. That's why we don't understand the moment of the Big Bang. And that's the big question. Can we understand those singularities, is what we call them in our mathematics today? And singularity is just a euphemism for we don't know what the hell is going on. What's your opinion about life in the universe? It's a good thing. (laughs) Do you think there are other forms of life in the universe? Ah, other life in the universe. Or maybe similar forms? Yeah, you know, um, you'll often hear people say things like, look, there are so many planets out there, even in our own galaxy. You know, it seems like many stars have planetary systems. You've got 100 billion stars, you know, 20 billion planets, you know, who knows what the numbers are, but they're enormous. And our galaxy, of course, is one of 100-plus billion galaxies that we are aware of, and that's just the observable universe. Space could go on infinitely far, right? So, so it's very compelling to hear someone say, look, there's just so many opportunities for life to form. Somewhere out there, there has to be life. And I, I get that too, and I, and I feel that intuition, and I feel the pull of that idea. On the other hand, it could be that the conditions required for life, we're getting closer to understanding them, but we don't understand them fully yet. Perhaps the conditions required for life are so fantastically unlikely 
that even in a universe with such a spectacular number of opportunities for life to form, maybe it's something that only happened once. That is a possibility too. If we're a bunch of particles and our consciousness is composed of particles, arranged in a special way, what happens to those when we die? It's easy? Yeah. You know, so, so when you die, the arrangement of the particles and the support system that allows the functioning and motion of those particles to take place ends. It ends. It's over. <laughs> and so what do you do with that? What do you do with, with that notion? Well, we know what we have done as a species. We develop all sorts of stories to try to feel better about that. The fear of death is one of the most potent driving forces of what we humans do. Every religion, in some sense, begins with the fear of death. And so we tell stories and we come up with ideas that try to imagine that we carry on in some way. And religions, of course, imagine that we carry on in some literal way, depending on which tradition you're talking about. But we also develop symbolic versions of immortality. We imagine that the families and the children that we produce, they will carry on the legacy. Or we build monuments, we build the pyramids, we build large buildings, we chisel our name in stone if we have the resources to do that. We create artistic works that we imagine might transcend the passage of time and allow something of our being to be given forward to the far future. So it is a powerful force. It's one that I think that we are all deeply subject to, even if you're one of those people who say, I'm not really afraid of death. You know, I know we're going to die, and that's all it is. If you examine that really closely, as I certainly have done for myself, you find that buried deep within the layers, you are affected in a powerful way by the singular recognition, only our species has it, that we are impermanent. Other animals can mourn their dead. But I don't think they walk around wondering about, you know, what's it going to be like when we're gone or what we should do with our life when we're here. We're the unique species that does that. And that's a powerful force. And it's one that I think you can come to terms with without telling yourselves accounts that are incompatible with our understanding of the world and recognize that the focus on the here and the now is what we are here for, we manufacture our own meaning, we manufacture our own purpose, it is not given to us from on high, and that is the noble approach to finding meaning, because it comes from within, as opposed to in being imposed on us by some external force that we imagine being out there. Um, you were talking about how uh, pleasure is a sort of art form that was derived from early evolutionary um, practices of humans. How do we know that physics isn't another way of us coping and isn't derived from an original sort of trying to figure everything out. I think it is. Cool. I, I would not say that it's not. It's one particular pathway toward a deeper understanding of how we fit into the world. And it's a very 
peculiar and particular pathway where we use this other language called mathematics and we have a certain barometer for measuring progress which is do our mathematical calculations approximate our observations and experiments ever better as we develop the ideas ever further but that's simply one approach to gaining insight into the nature of reality and I do think that artistic undertaking is another approach to gain insight into the nature of reality I think religious practice and the spiritual quest to understand what's happening within our own worlds and trying to gain insight into the nature of what it means to be a human being through that kind of spiritual quest, that's another approach to truth. And it's a valid and important one. You know, William James in 1902 wrote a wonderful book that people seem not to read very much any longer called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And within a space of 20 lectures gives one of the most convincing and heartfelt descriptions of why religion really matters. And by the conclusion, by lecture 20, he describes how religious or religious practice or the spiritual quest is vital to the journey that we are on. He describes it as something that allows us to understand the, the terror and the beauty of phenomenon. He describes it as the, as the voice of the thunder, of the gentleness of the summer rain, of the sublimity of the stars. And it's within that kind of an inner experience that spiritual or religious practice can really matter. So religious practice is never going to do the calculation of the electron's magnetic moment that I mentioned before to 10 decimal places. That's not what it's for. It's not for illuminating the objective world. And using that as the yardstick is ludicrous. But it is something that can illuminate the inner world of self-awareness, of conscious experience. And that's the place where it can matter. Well, why, but why, uh, can I just follow up on that? Why do you think that math, mathematics has this primacy over letters? Well, it's not, that it, has, it's not that it has primacy. It's just a very economical way of analyzing qualities of the world. Every mathematical equation could be described in the English language. It would just be very hard to do the analysis. So it's simply a powerful means of encapsulating patterns in a, in a way that allows us to understand them and to extrapolate from the patterns that we see to the patterns that we haven't yet seen. That's what mathematics, at least in the service of physics, is all about. Am I correct in thinking that you're going off of the assumption that anything actually exists in the way that we seem to experience it? Like, I was thinking as you were talking about simulations like the world seems to follow rules and you're assuming that these rules exist and certainly as far as we've seen it these rules exist but could this actually be a simulation where we are inside of a universe that just doesn't have rules and this is some crazy and we are some crazy person's dream of a universe that actually follows rules and how do you with all these random ideas that we can fling around of actual what reality is, what makes you think that uh, your narrow view of what is real and what laws actually exist is the right one in any way, shape, or form? Yeah. So, 
So there is a, a, a provocative idea that perhaps you are familiar with, but certainly your question is pointing toward, which is the so-called simulation hypothesis, which examines the possibility that everything that we consider to be real, the world around us, is indeed nothing but a complex code playing out on a supercomputer of the future. Maybe there's a 15-year-old kid in a futuristic garage who fires up universe simulations, and we are in that simulation right now. And, in fact, Nick Bostrom, a philosopher at Oxford, takes that argument even a little bit further and notes that it's very difficult to create a real universe. Right? It's very difficult to spark a new Big Bang. However, in the far future, or maybe if we're in the simulations happening right now, but let's say in the very far future, it might be very simple to fire up one universe simulation after another after another. I mean, everybody might have these supercomputers, and it may be a pastime that each of these individuals creates a universe simulation. So there would be potentially a huge number of simulated universes and very few real universes of the sort that emerge, say, from a real Big Bang. So if you think about the question, are you in the real universe or a simulated one, merely by looking at the probabilities, there's so many more simulated ones compared to real ones that we should all come to the conclusion that we are in a simulated universe right now. Now, um, there, are, there are some stipulations in that. It could be that intelligent, self-aware beings such as ourselves always destroy ourselves before we reach the point of creating the possibility of simulating universes with this kind of verisimilitude that it's convincing to the inhabitants, right? Uh, it could be that it turns out that it is simply impossible to ever simulate a world like this in which the beings have conscious self-awareness. That's a possibility too. So, but if you put those two to the side, then yeah, it's quite possible that we are in a simulation. It's quite possible that the rules that we are working out here, the very narrow view of reality that, that we physicists are focused on, could actually be nothing but the computer code on one little simulation that one kid happened to fire up. Now, the, the thing to, to, to bear in mind here is that the patterns that we see out in the world and the mathematics that we develop to describe them is capable of describing time back to the Big Bang and arbitrarily far into the future. It's able to describe the particles of matter up to the interactions between them yielding complex beings such as ourselves. So it's a very powerful mathematical formalism that we are discussing here. It's hard for me to think of it as narrow in its explanatory scope it is narrow in terms of its failure to give us insight into the kinds of questions that we've also discussed here tonight, such as purpose and meaning and things of, of that sort, where you do need the humanistic account that we've been focusing upon. The one value that I would say in the simulation hypothesis is simply this. This is a version in which there is a God. There is a creator, right? It's that kid in the garage, the nice thing about this version of having a creator is that it doesn't invoke anything supernatural whatsoever. So you could have the situation where we are intelligently designed by a thinking conscious being that he or she or whatever the gender is is subject to the laws of physics that exist in that outer world and we are simply the result of 
that cogitating being coming to an interesting possibility and coding it and firing it up. So you can have a creator in a manner that's not supernatural. And at least it's kind of an existence proof for taking that idea seriously. Now, do I buy into this as a real explanation of the world? I don't. I don't, I don't see enough evidence for that. I don't even know what evidence would look like that we're in a simulation. And perhaps I'll finish this as one final thought comes to mind. A paper was written which examined how you should behave if you do, in fact, believe that we are in a simulation. <laughs> and the idea is that the simulator, the creator, doesn't want to waste CPU on someone who's kind of boring. So you really should be an iconoclast. You should do something that really captures the creator's attention if you want to persist in that simulation. So if you're going to buy into this, that's how you should behave. <laughs> thank you so much for coming out tonight. And thank Brian, his amazing particle. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to Brian Green in conversation with Gina Pell. This program was recorded February 25th, 2020 at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate Goldstein-Breyer and Holly Mulder-Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Production and Communications Assistant is Juliet gelfman Rondazzo. The post-production director is Nina Thorson. The Sidney Goldstein Theatre Technical Director, Steve Eckerd. House Manager, Lucy Faulkner. The recording engineer is Jane Heaven. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The founding producer is Sidney Goldstein. To attend a live program, see who is coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net.